So we're going to be continuing our series this morning in Matthew's Gospel and looking again at the Beatitudes of our Lord from his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, remember, if you, if you remember, began with Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about the fact that this poverty of spirit has nothing to do with the abundance or the lack of personal resources we have, but rather a state of being in a believer who understands his or her poverty of spirit in comparison to the holiness of God. And how that realization was kind of the starting link that the other Beatitudes suspend from. And we've, as we've gone through them, I, I hope that I've conveyed, and I, I hope maybe you've seen, that there's a pattern that starts to emerge, or a theme, I guess we could say, that in the giving of the Beatitudes, Jesus is not giving us a checklist of duties for earning the kingdom, but instead a description of those who have already graciously received it. And that theme continues today as we go back to our text. So if you have your Bibles, and I, I do hope you bring your Bibles with you, even though it's on the screen, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And this time we'll be reading the first seven verses. And listen for the voice of the Spirit. So in seeing the crowds, he, of course, meaning Jesus, went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our fathers, we come to your word today, Lord, in this busy world and its constant demands for our attention. We ask you, Lord, to open our eyes now that we might know your presence, that we might feel your power, that we might seek your face. And we ask you, Father, to draw us close to you, Lord, today and speak to us by your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we've seen, Jesus opens his sermon on the mount with the, the Beatitudes, this, this series of statements describing the, the blessed life or the happier than life. And the fifth one in the lineup that we come to is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But then that begs the question, what exactly is mercy? Uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it as compassion or forbearance shown, especially to an offender or one who is subject to another's power. And the subheading also says lenient or compassionate treatment. Uh, and church, the Bible is full of instances of God demonstrating that, demonstrating his mercy. God showed his mercy to Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 6 after he had decided to destroy creation because of their sinfulness. But we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and he was spared. God's compassion was on display in his rescuing of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, bringing them into the promised land in Exodus 15. Later, after the people rebelled against God in their new homeland and were sent into captivity in a foreign country. God still watched over them, and, and they confessed, and, and they, they said, Lord, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And kind of building on that idea, God's mercy is often uh, coupled with his other attributes of his in the Bible, like his grace in places like Psalm 86, 15. It says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And, and of course, we can't forget the well-known line from Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And all of those things pointing those ancient believers to probably the greatest aspect of God's mercy at the time uh, that was illustrated and acted out so dramatically every year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies uh, where we're told in Leviticus chapter 16 that he shall take some of the blood of the atoning sacrifice Sprinkle it on the front of the mercy seat seven times. or In other words, laying the blood of a substitute as a perfect sacrifice on the top of the Ark of the Covenant between the outstretched wings of the cherubim, but the very throne of God on earth, the throne of His mercy. To, to mark God's forgiveness of His people and to act as a placeholder for an even more perfect, more permanent sacrifice to come. And I'm going to want to circle back around to that idea, so just stick a pin in that for a minute. Keep that thought to the side for a minute, uh, because moving on, these ideas are not just Old Testament themes. The steadfast love of God is combined with His mercy in Ephesians chapter 2, which says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved demonstrating that God's mercy is rooted in His love for us, who, though dead in sin, receive not the justice we deserve, but receive a forgiveness that we don't. And that's a concept that's been almost completely lost in our postmodern, post-Christian world, that idea of God's justice. Uh, and we become so politically correct now that we're afraid to talk to anybody about sin and mercy and justice. Well, almost anything, really, except for the weather. Uh, and even then you have to be careful in case you're talking to a crazy climate change loony. Uh, but, but much less, right? Speak out for the honor of God's reign and the righteousness of his laws and the holiness of his word. But brothers and sisters, that's where real justice and mercy come from. And a true and unbiased understanding of both begins when we measure ourselves, not against ourselves, but against the plumb line of sacred scripture and see what we really look like in God's eyes. And we find out just how far we are off the mark. And then we confess in the words of Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. How many is that? None, no one, not anyone, not you, and definitely not me. And that's why this world as a whole and we as individuals should be really, really careful not to go around shaking our fists at heaven and demanding justice. Because I can promise you that no one, especially me, really wants it. Because I, I know I'm a sinner. And unless you are terribly deceived, you know you are too. And the Bible says very plainly that the wages of sin is what? Death. That, that's, ju that's justice. That's justice for those that want it. That's God's original rule for the universe spelled out very plainly in places like Ezekiel 18 that says the soul that sins shall die, any sin. Because in the initial created, created order, all sin was deemed worthy of death. Every sin is a capital offense. It's in the words of the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, he said, every sin is cosmic treason against a sovereign God. Every sin is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything to the one who created us and gave us the gift of life. And he says, because when we sin and disobey God in the slightest point, we are saying we are above his jurisdiction and that we have the right to do whatever we want to do 
and not what our Creator has commanded us to do. Which caused another theologian to observe, he said, the most mysterious aspect of our sin and of God's justice is not that sinners deserve to die, but rather that sinners in the average situation continue to exist. So the issue is not why does God punish sin, but rather why does He choose to be so merciful? Why does He permit our ongoing rebellion and our disrespect? What ruler or boss or even an earthly father do you know that would ever do that? None none that I know of. Um, I never had a boss or a teacher who would do that. I know my dad wouldn't have put up with it uh, and let me abuse them and disrespect them. And as a boss and as a parent, I've never put up with that, and I'd be willing to bet that not many of you have either. Uh, And I think we all kind of get that, right? The idea of owing someone something, owing someone, uh, and then expecting it, like whether it's respect or, or honor or loyalty, right? We get that. Or heaven forbid, money. That's a whole different story. And in fact, in Matthew, later on, our Lord is going to make exactly that argument in pointing to God's mercy in Matthew 18. So if you still have your Bibles open in front of you, take a look at Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. And we're told that Peter came to him, meaning Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? He's being really generous. Uh, No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars, and he couldn't pay. So his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient and I'll pay it all. His master was filled with pity for him and he released him and he forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars and he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time, be patient with me and I will pay, he pleaded but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset, and they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Because see, when when, when we're in debt, mercy and patience and understanding are very appealing concepts, aren't they? Especially if we fall behind on a payment of it. But when someone owes us, on the other hand, those lovely concepts lose some of their luster, especially if someone owes us a whole lot. And that's when the idea of fairness becomes much more appealing because we want justice when we've been injured, but mercy when we're the ones who've committed the offense. We want justice when we've been injured, but we want mercy when we're the offender. I think that's really true of all of us. One commentator wrote of this, he said, our clamor for justice is almost always skewed in our favor. 
but where the light of the gospel shines, justice demands that we agree with God's assessment of our true condition. Since whenever we demand justice and lawfulness from others, we affirm the standard that also condemns us. Because think about it, right? We, we can't rightly ask God to uphold just a little part of his justice, can we? Just, just enforce the parts that suit me. But that's really the message of Jesus' parable there, wasn't it? That what God owes us if we really want what's fair and right is punitive justice. But instead of giving us what we deserve, instead of giving us the punishment we've earned, what he gives us is his compassionate mercy. And you see how different that is from the message of the world? See, because the truth is that the idea of genuine justice should shake us to our knees. While at the same time, inspiring us a genuine heartfelt compassion for those that have wronged us. And that begins with individual personal repentance. One that recognizes that you're messed up and God knows I'm messed up. And we have all messed up our relationships with each other and with our holy God. Who, despite what we deserve, reaches out to us with mercy and teaches us what real love looks like in the face of Jesus Christ and the compassion that he offers in his nail-scarred hands. A compassion that looks past the rebellion that we embody and into your heart and into my heart. And regardless of who we are, he sees the sin that's in there and he makes a moral judgment based on the transcendent truth of his word. And he says, that's wrong. He says, you're in sin and you're out of line. But then he's moved by the depths of his mercy to do something about it, even though it costs the life of his only son in the most horrendous act of injustice ever perpetrated on this planet, where the innocent was sacrificed for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the hellbound, at the one place, the only place, where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled. And that's at the cross of Calvary where God's justice was perfectly administered, his mercy publicly displayed. When God took upon himself the punishment meant for the guilty, meant for me, it meant for us, so that sinful, guilty human beings could be reconciled to him without one ounce of guilt being swept under the rug, or one bit of justice unserved, or one single drop of mercy wasted, all because of what Jesus endured for us to fulfill the truth of God's royal justice and the tenderness of his divine love. A love and a justice combined together in his holy nature. And one that's only hinted at and pointed to in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 99 where we read, The Lord is king, let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim, let the whole earth quake. O Lord our God, you answered your people. You showed them that you're a God who forgives even though you punish them for your sins. I hope you caught that first line there, that, that part about he sits between the cherubim, those, those ones on tar, the Ark of the Covenant I said we'd circle back to. Uh, do you remember where that happens? It happens in the holiest spot, in the holiest place, in the tabernacle at the mercy seat. That mercy seat hammered from a single piece of gold to serve as the lid for the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and besides being a literal covering of the Ark, it also represented a covering for sin. Because once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of a spotless sacrifice. And God, seeing the penalty of sin paid by the substitute of an animal's blood, forgave his people. And they did it year after year. 
looking ahead in faith that what they did symbolically that the Messiah would accomplish actually and bring an end to all of the sin and death and guilt in this crazy fallen world and usher in an age of true justice tempered with divine mercy. And guess what? Their hopes came true. Finally, he came. Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who was falsely accused, illegally arrested, given a haphazard sham of a trial, crucified and died, had his body prepared and laid out on a slab in a borrowed tomb with a giant stone for a seal above it. But he didn't stay dead, did he? John chapter 20 tells us that story. Remember the story of Mary Magdalene had come to the tomb and found the heavy stone rolled away and she stopped and looked inside. She found that the body of Jesus was gone from the burial slab with two brilliant angels sitting upon it. John in chapter 20 tells us she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Two angels so beautifully reminiscent of the two golden angels, those two golden cherubim on either end of the mercy seat above the ark that I made mention of. But see, this time, this time the high priest and the sacrifice and the God who received them were not three separate entities, but were mercifully united in the person and work of Jesus Christ to bring that all together. Just in case you think that's too far of a stretch to imagine, listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews chapter 10. He tells us the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. Sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again year after year, but they were never able to provide a perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burn offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them though they are required by the law of Moses. And then he said, look, I've come to do your will. And he cancels the first covenant in order to put the second covenant into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin. Good for all time. And then he says, I'll never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And by his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in. I love that verse. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. Amen, somebody. And to make it clear that Christ is our physical, visible demonstration that God is just. And so he must condemn our sins, but God is love. And so he became a man in the person of Jesus who lived a perfect life and goes to the cross where all of the justice and wrath of God that I deserve was thrown down instead on him. And in in addition to that, leaving mercy is the only available, only reasonable response for you and me to offer to others when we've been wronged, all on account of the outrageously unmerited mercy that we've been shown. 
And so Jesus says to us today, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Will you dare to withhold that from others, what you yourself have received? Will you strangle someone this week for a little crime against you when Christ has released you from capital punishment on death row? Will you give godless malice where you've been shown amazing grace? I pray that you won't. I, I pray that I won't. But that we will draw on the well of mercy that we've received and freely share what freely we have been given. If, in fact, you have been given it. Which is the thought I want to leave you with today. Have you received it? Have you received the mercy of a God who feels your heart and who knows your pain? Because if you haven't, it's available today, and I, I beg you don't leave without it. I can't guarantee you'll ever have another chance to get it. And so listen for the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we pray, and I say to you in Christ's name, repent and believe the gospel right where you are in the silence of your hearts, and then tell me about it, and come and be baptized for the remission of sin, or make a public profession of faith, and begin to live out the blessings of the Beatitudes in a life bathed in mercy, in a life bound for heaven. And for the rest of you, for all of those who are in Christ, brothers and sisters, our Lenten journey begins today. Because every year at this time, we celebrate the redemption that we have through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And we use this season as a time to prepare for that celebration and to renew our lives in the mystery of God's undeserved mercy, acknowledging our need for repentance and for forgiveness as proclaimed in the gospel. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, I invite you in the name of Jesus to observe a holy Lent by self-examination and by prayer and by works of love and by reading and meditating on God's word until we come together on Holy Week at the foot of the cross. Amen. Now let's pray together. Almighty God, who created us out of the dust of the earth, accomplish in us, your children, we pray the work of salvation, that we may show forth your glory in this world. And Father, for those who don't know you today, I ask that you would convict them concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, that they would come to understand their lost condition apart from you and see their need for Jesus. And for all of us, Lord, don't allow the enemy to steal our joy or peace this week, but cover us in the blood of your Son, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. And so, brothers and sisters, let's confess together publicly what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.